Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guests are the distinguished professors Howard Gilman and Erwin Chemerinsky, authors of the book, The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State published by Oxford University Press in 2020, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Professors Chemerinsky and Gilman. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Yeah, it is. Uh, And I'm sure as constitutional scholars, you must be pretty busy right now. It's uh, (laughs) There are certain times in history when you do work overtime to keep track of everything. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can we, we usually like to start off by um, letting our guests uh, tell our audience uh, a bit more about themselves, uh, particularly in relation to the subject of the book. So I would I'd invite uh, Howard on first and then um, Erwin. Yes, thanks. So um, I'm a professor of uh, law, political science and history uh, with uh, and I've been writing about constitutional law, constitutional history, and Supreme Court politics for about 30 years. I'm also the chancellor of the University of California, Irvine campus, and um, uh, and uh, have had a wonderful relationship with Irwin for many, many years. And a few years ago, when we saw certain directions and where the Supreme Court was heading on the question of the relationship between uh, the Constitution and religion, we thought it would be a good idea for us uh, to remind people what some of the arguments were for why it might be important uh, for government to be secular and to maintain a separation between the church and state. Okay. Uh, Professor Chemerinsky, anything to add? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of law at UC Berkeley and also dean of the law school. Howard and I have known each other since we were young faculty members at the University of Southern California. Mm -hmm. We were colleagues at University of California, Irvine. I was the dean of the law school there and he was provost and then chancellor. We had done a book together about free speech on campus. And I was very excited when we had the idea we should do a book on the religion clauses, which, of course, led to the one we're talking about today. Right. So, um, so you were to, well, let's start off, I guess, just with the uh, religion clauses themselves, the title of your book. So what are the religion clauses and why is it important? I'll start. There's two provisions in the First Amendment that deal with religion. One says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. We refer to this as the Establishment Clause. And though it says Congress, since 1947, the Supreme Court has said it also means that state and local governments can't establish religion. The other provision says that there can't be any law abridging free exercise of religion, often called, of course, the Free Exercise Clause. And even though this, too, refers to Congress, 
Since 1940, the Supreme Court has said that state and local governments can't infringe free exercise of religion. Our view is that these clauses together are meant to create a wall that separates church and state. The idea is that the government itself should be secular, but we should, through the Constitution, protect the exercise of religion in the private realm. In other words, the place for religion is in our homes, our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, and that must be protected. But the government, to the greatest extent possible, should be secular. All right. Is there anything you want to add, Howard? And it's one of the great um, innovations of the American Constitution. The framers of the Constitution came out of a political tradition where um, there had been great turmoil uh, uh, over the question of government's relationship to religion. One of the distinctive features of the original Constitution was this commitment to making the government inherently secular, having no religious tests for office, uh, and ensuring that Religion would live in the free choices of people, but that government wouldn't be establishing a religion or engaging itself in religious activity, and that people would be free to exercise religion um, uh, to the fullest extent possible uh, without government discrimination or oppression. So it's such an important feature of the original uh, Constitution that uh, its meaning in uh, uh, today's world is still very important to engage and consider. All right, but uh, the argument in your book is that uh, these understandings have been and are under threat and have been attacked, correct? Uh, would you like to elaborate on that? So starting a few years ago, as the Supreme Court has become more conservative, there have been a number of cases whereby the justices, for the first time in a very long time, are aligning government action more closely with religious activity. So allowing, for example, local governments to begin um, uh, their government sessions with uh, particular prayers that are associated with particular religious dominations, Christian religious dominations, nominations, and uh, also allowing the government in ways that had not been allowed for a very long time to use taxpayer resources to fund uh, religious activity, including uh, capital projects uh, for uh, places of worship. And we've also seen recently the court beginning to move in the direction of allowing religious individuals to claim that because they have objections to certain laws, for example, laws prohibiting discrimination against same-sex couples, or gays and lesbians, that they shouldn't have to obey those laws the way everyone else does, simply because they have a religious objection. And in both of those circumstances, we think the court is moving in the wrong direction. Is there anything you'd like to add, Erwin? I very much agree with that description. In 1947, when the Supreme Court said that the Establishment Clause applies to state and local governments, all nine justices said that that provision was best understood through the words of Thomas Jefferson, there should be a wall that separates church and state. This idea of a wall that separates church and state doesn't come from liberal professors in the early 21st century. Those were Thomas Jefferson's words. Now we have a majority of the court that rejects the idea there should be a wall that separates church and state. They believe that the government only violates the Establishment Clause if it coerces religious participation. And rarely will anything violate the Establishment Clause. 
So religious symbols on government property are fine from their perspective because it doesn't coerce religious participation. Government aid to religion is fine because it doesn't coerce religious participation. At the same time, 30 years ago, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Antonin Scalia, said that there shouldn't be exemptions from general laws given on the basis of religion. But now the conservatives have shifted. And as Howard was saying, very much want to give exemptions from, say, anti-discrimination laws to those who have a religious ground for wanting to discriminate. It's a major shift in the law. It's one that we think is undesirable. And it's really the reason we wrote the book. And so, I mean, the argument of your book, um, I, I suppose, it goes against uh, these recent rulings and, and gives uh, your reasons. So is it that um, uh, you are sort of providing uh, legal ammunition to have these uh, points of, of view challenged in, in the court? Um, uh, what, what is really, it, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, of the, the aim of, of the, the book in, in your criticism. Uh, it, how, how do you see this uh, being able to be reversed if it can? Well, Kurt, thanks for that. So I think one of the things we wanted to do with the book is give the average reader a better understanding of what these current debates are about, give them a way to go through the history, understand what the concerns of the framers of the U.S. Constitution were. And then we do try very carefully when, for example, we talk about the Establishment Clause to let everyone know what the major approaches are in the history of constitutional law to how the court has interpreted the Establishment Clause, talk about the strengths and weaknesses of various arguments, and then we do want to make our view clear. But we hope that in the course of reading the book, any reader would come away with a better understanding of the different ways you could look at each of these issues. Then we do want to make an argument, and we think that in the public domain right now, especially given where the court is going, there is a lot of focus on the direction that the court is heading. And we wanted to make sure that what wasn't lost was the alternative tradition that has served us so well over so many decades. And just to let people understand at a, at a better, at a deeper level that uh, there is an alternative way of thinking about the relationship between church and state that still has tremendous merit and that people should embrace that alternative tradition. Right. Anything you'd like to add, Owen? I very much agree with that. I think in part it's to add to the scholarly discussion on the topic. There is a voluminous scholarly literature on the appropriate way to interpret the religion clauses. And I think that we have arguments to advance that discussion. In part, I hope it's to educate readers and it's written to be accessible so it's not meant just to be for scholars or lawyers. It's meant to be for the general public. And obviously, our hope is that by doing these things in the long term, we can influence the direction of the law. We're not naive. We know there's a conservative Supreme Court. Not that we believe that this book is going to cause them to change their mind. But we also think that in the long term, this is the right view. And well, hopefully, it's one that will prevail. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I suppose uh, it, it's an important point where you're talking about the general reader. And I mean, if, if we're speaking uh, to the center here, as opposed to 
either the extreme left, uh, you know, extreme anti-religionists on the one hand, or the extreme, uh, you know, Christian right, let's say, on, on the other hand. If if we take the, you know, if we try to speak to the to the middle, I, I would say one issue that people probably have concerns about is, say, the issue of prayer in school. And um, they would say that, you know, this has been, uh, as far as they're, they're concerned, to, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure what the historical fact is, but as far as they're concerned, it's always been like that has been traditional for centuries, perhaps since the founding, perhaps from before. And uh, that it's a recent attack on... Um, on, on the way that, uh, you know, people have been, uh, that Americans uh, from the founders on down have been um, practicing, uh, you know, education. Um, so what would your, um, because if, if I understand you correctly, um, you, you agree with uh, the decisions not to have prayers in school and you think it's fully consistent with the establishment and the, uh, the establishment clause in particular um but how would you you make that argument to you know an ordinary person uh, just you know who has the concerns i just outlined the idea is that the government should be secular the place for prayer is in people's own daily lives and as i said their churches their synagogues their mosques i think the supreme court got it exactly right in the early 1960s when it said even voluntary prayer in public schools is inherently coercive. Students will feel the need to participate, even if it's against the religions that they're being brought up in. That's why the Supreme Court now, for well, well over 50 years, has said that prayer in public schools is unconstitutional. Yet I also fear there may be a majority on the Supreme Court to reconsider that. In 1992, the Supreme Court held that having a clergy member deliver prayers at a public school graduation violates the Constitution. The court stressed the coercion that's there when prayer is part of public school activities. But Justice Scalia said, what about all the students who want prayer to be there? Shouldn't they have the right to have prayer? I think that's where the majority of the current court may go. And it very much frightens us because we do believe that there will be coercion for students to participate. It's just inherent to the nature of those kinds of activities. And Kurt, the, um, for a long time, the Supreme Court did not really address uh, these two religion clauses because it was uncertain whether they actually applied to the activities of the state, the, the, of state governments rather than just the federal government. But the minute that the court in the mid-20th century began addressing that issue, whether states were behaving in a way that was consistent with these clauses, it immediately reached the conclusion that having the government in organizing its schools require everyone to say a particular prayer could not be reconciled with the history and tradition uh, leading to the creation of the Establishment Clause. The, the other thing, of course, that has changed over the last 50 or 60 years, is that uh, we understand more the importance of the great religious diversity uh, of our republic. Uh, for a long time, it was assumed that there would be a Protestant establishment that would have a special place 
within the political system. And that was tremendously exclusive of people who didn't associate themselves with that faith tradition. And I think even if you weren't a constitutional scholar, if you believe in freedom of religion, if you believe in religious pluralism and diversity, there's nothing that could more seriously undermine true religious liberty than if the government started playing favorites. If you were a Jewish child growing up in the 50s, when every single day in public school you had to read a Christian prayer, that sends the signal that you're not as much part of this political system as other people are. And I think as we come to appreciate more the importance of religious diversity, the, the older traditions are much harder to justify. In terms of the uh, uh, free exercise, um, you, you've mentioned a couple of examples about um, companies providing contraceptive insurance or, or health insurance to cover contraceptives. And also uh, another case was with the Trinity Lutheran Church in Mississippi um, accessing public funds for, I believe it was um, a schoolyard, uh, paving schoolyard. Um, so you you. you we can go over that, but I, I want to kind of push it further as well. Um, let's say in terms of, um, you know, Muslims and they're, uh, they're prohibited from selling alcohol or, or drinking alcohol, um, or, you know, say Orthodox Jews who, um, you know, want to adhere to the dietary laws and not serve kosher foods. Um, would would the um, would the way you interpret the free exercise uh, clause, you know, also apply to them to say force Muslims to serve alcohol or Orthodox Jewish business owners to sell non-kosher foods, um, uh, you know, in the same way as as it would apply to say Christians who may have certain beliefs or, or objections. The easy answer is no. There is no law that requires that anyone sell alcoholic beverages. Any business that doesn't want to sell alcohol can choose not to do so. There's no law that requires that any grocery store sell pork products. Anybody who doesn't want to do so can refuse doing so. Where there are laws, though, that prohibit certain behavior, we're saying there shouldn't be a religious exemption to them. Let's take anti-discrimination laws, laws that prohibit businesses from discriminating based on race or sex or religion or sexual orientation. What we're saying then is that people do have to comply with those laws, even if they're inconsistent with religious beliefs. So the key question is, is there a law in the books that requires or prohibits such behavior? I mean, your examples with regard to alcohol and selling pork, there aren't any laws on the books. Mm, I see. I, I don't know if there's anything you want to add there, Howard. That sounds pretty clear from Erwin. <laughs> yeah, no, Erwin is always uh, very clear. The, um, you know, I think uh, where it gets tricky is when you are imagining a person who's operating in commerce, right? This is not, for example, the organization of a church or whether a church itself can pick its leaders or whether a church can decide who will be among its parishioners. Right. If, if you are running a business, you have a cake shop or a photography business and there are general laws against discrimination. For example, you know that you can't have a cake shop and simply refuse to serve African-Americans. 
that's what the whole civil rights acts of the 1960s were designed to prevent. If, on the other hand, you have a religious objection to serving certain people, for example, as a Christian, you don't agree with same-sex marriage, so you don't want to sell a wedding cake to people who are uh, same-sex, where then do your rights exist under those circumstances? And in our view, if it is illegal for people to discriminate against people on the basis of sexual orientation uh, or same-sex status, then you have no right merely because of your religious views to not obey these general laws that everyone else has to obey. And one of the reasons why we think that is a natural and inevitable conclusion is is to think about all the different religious traditions we have. And everyone who comes out of a faith tradition might have some disagreement with some public policy or another. And it is just completely unimaginable to imagine that what is required of judges is that every single time someone says, I have a faith uh, commitment not to use a social security number, or my faith prohibits me from recognizing the legitimacy of same-sex marriages, or even my faith does not believe that the races should commingle, that that faith has to be accommodated every single time someone raises a religious objection. What inevitably will happen instead is that certain favored and politically powerful faith traditions, like conservative Christians who are now arguing before the Supreme Court on this issue, will be given special favors if you allow the exceptions to be made whereas other people will not. And and that is just one additional uh, unfairness on top of another. Better, we think, to protect the core idea of the free exercise of religion, but not allow that to mean that every religious practitioner is 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 a law unto themselves and that the government and courts have to make these impossible decisions about which faith tradition beliefs should be reconciled with which government policies. Right. So, so if if there was to be any sort of um, recognition of of say religious, uh, I don't know, prohibitions and and uh, and these sorts of things, it it would have to be included uh, explicitly within the law, um, rather than I suppose uh, um, implicitly understood by by the court. Is, is would that be some sort of a um, Middle ground, almost. I mean, or if uh, if 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 one wanted to accommodate um, various religious uh, traditions, that's exactly what the Supreme Court said in 1990 in a case called Employment Division versus Smith. And what I clarify is, it's not just implicitly. The question is, does the First Amendment to the Constitution create an exemption for religion from general laws? And the Supreme Court 30 years ago said no. And we're defending that approach of Justice Scalia. Unfortunately, it's one that now we think the conservative justice on the current court reject. And it is, I think, Kurt, a different thing. When mm-hmm. legislatures and other public policymakers uh, themselves consider the appropriateness of certain accommodations, even during the period of prohibition in the United States, that prohibition was not applied to 
the sipping of wine in the course of certain religious practices. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, and when, for example, the Affordable Care Act was passed in the United States, there, there was a, an acknowledgement that even though we want private businesses to extend certain health benefits to their employees, including the full range of women's health, contraception and the like, that it that may not have to apply to actual formal religious institutions. The local Catholic diocese does not have to, under the ACA, provide uh, abortion or contraception care to the people who are working for the church as a church. And so those issues are usually pretty straightforward. The question is, whether someone outside of that environment who simply has objections, for example, to contraceptives or abortion, can themselves as a in a, in a secular commercial environment deny to their employees a health benefit they would otherwise be uh, entitled to. And we, we, we agree, I assume, that if you as an employer were opposed to people eating pork, you could not say to your employees, I will give you your salary so long as you do not use your salary to purchase pork. That, that, that they simply have an obligation to follow um, uh, traditional labor laws. And it shouldn't be any different if part of the government uh, ecosystem is for the employers to have to have certain kinds of healthcare instruments that also ensure certain access by employees to uh, healthcare. Yeah. You know, I, um, the, w- one of the issues that, that comes up and, and you devote your, the final chapter in your book to it is this question of, of hostility that, um, people, because I, I mean, your arguments are, are very sound. They're very reasonable. They're very rational. Um, but because, the the actual legal actions often have taken place in a political environment where there have been you know very uh, you know anti-christian anti uh, religious people uh, involved in some of these actions that that people uh, react accordingly rather than you know to the rational arguments and so forth uh, that you are you're portraying here and and in terms of of the um, the idea that there's this hostility to uh, Christianity um, right now, and that and that um, that the attacks on on, on these things are are, are um, well, th- there's a debate whether it's constitutional or unconstitutional, and that's what you're entering in. Um, there, I found a, a very interesting uh, alternative view. It's a, it's a centrist. It's a centrist type of view, but a little more to the right. I, you know, if I would say you guys are more sort of you know centrist, liberal, left, you might be centrist, right. Uh, but it, it's an interesting thing that I'd like to hear your response to. Um, it's Mark David Hall, Herbert Hoover, distinguished professor of political science. I'm not sure if you know him or not, but uh, it's it's uh, he said religious liberty is a right and must be protected. Right? This is his reading of the Constitution. The same clauses: um, the national government should not create an established church, and states should have them only if they encourage and assist Christianity. This is his conclusion of what what um, was implied. And religion belongs in the public square. In short, while America did not have a Christian founding in the sense of creating a theocracy, 
Its founding was deeply shaped by Christian moral truths. More important, it created a regime that was hospitable to Christians, but also to practitioners of other religions. Uh, do you object to to anything inside there? Is is your position um, substantially different? Yes, it's substantially different. I think I disagree with everything that he said. Mm-hmm. I think that the Constitution was meant to have all levels of government be secular. That the First Amendment of the Constitution obviously meant this for the federal government, and since 1947, that's applied to state and local governments. Also, any enforcement of the Establishment Clause is saying to the government, it can't do something the government wants. But that's not hostility to the religion. That's recognizing the appropriate role for religion. I also very much disagree with his characterization of Christianity playing some key role with regard to the Constitution. The framers of the Constitution saw themselves as products of the Enlightenment, where reason replaced religion as a basis for decision. Nowhere in the Constitution do they invoke Christianity or religion at all. And in fact, in the Treaty of Tripoli, not long after the Constitution was adopted, it was very clear that the United States did not see itself as a Christian nation. It saw itself as a secular nation. And beyond that, the the framers during the ratification debates had a very specific argument with people about whether it should be a precondition of being an office holder in the United States that someone be a Christian. It was imaginable that they could have contemplated this in a formal way as a Christian nation. And that was explicitly rejected. The Constitution Mm -hmm. is remarkable in the sense that it makes no reference to a creator. It makes no reference to religious tests for office. It gives Congress zero authority to pass any laws relating to religious activity. And, And the reason why the United States is today the country uh, among Western democracies that is among the most religious is that we have created a system, especially starting the mid 20th century, where all religious traditions can blossom. And it is precisely in keeping the government out of these debates that you advance religion the most. We believe that religion should be part of the public square. People should decorate their homes, they should proudly convey uh, their own religious faith traditions, but that the government shouldn't pick sides. We believe that people should freely exercise their religion, but that the government can't create certain special favorites. If you maintain a separation of church and state, you will create the conditions that are most conducive to actual religious liberty. And we feel very strongly that not only are we not engaging in any hostility to religion, we think the alternative path that the court is considering itself threatens real religious liberty in the United States. That's interesting. Um, now, I, I know we're heading to the end of our interview, unfortunately, so I can't delve into some of these questions as, as we might otherwise like. But um, where do you see the interpretation of the religious clauses heading? Because you know it's a live issue. Uh, I, I'm not sure if there are any cases, uh, important cases before the court right now on it, but I'm sure they will continue in future. Where do you see it heading? Kirk, let me uh, just give you a quick overview of a very important case that has actually just been um, uh, argued in the Supreme Court uh, earlier uh, this week called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. This is a case involving the City of Philadelphia's responsibility 
to take care of foster children. And they have that responsibility. One of the things they do with that responsibility is contract with some third parties to help assess whether certain homes might be appropriate for um, uh, for uh, the placement of foster children. And part of that contract with these third parties is that the third parties have to agree to abide by all of the anti-discrimination laws. You're not going to hire someone uh, to evaluate the placement of a foster child if they are engaging in discriminatory behavior. Well, Catholic Social Services wants to be able to have one of those contracts, but also at the same time, not evaluate same-sex couples as potential people who could be uh, in uh, uh, foster uh, parents. Uh, The court now is going to be deciding whether uh, the free exercise clause allows Catholic social services to have this contract but not have to abide by the anti-discrimination portions of that contract. That gets to the issue of whether this case employment division versus Smith which says that there should be no exceptions for religious practitioners for general and neutral laws, whether that case may actually be overturned. So we think that we are heading into a a period where either in that case or some other cases, there will be much more accommodation of religious practitioners, especially to violate anti-discrimination laws to the great risk of same-sex couples, the LBGTQ community and the like, We think that would be um, a a very distressing development, but that is a live issue this year in the Supreme Court. Okay. Well, in in closing, let me ask you, what message would you like to leave your readers with? Well, we would love the readers to join us in conversation on this issue. I think that if you're generally interested in this topic, wherever, whether you think you're on one side or the other right now, I hope that you'll find this book a valuable contribution to your knowledge about these debates. You'll learn a lot about every position that people have taken over history on these questions. And given that there is a very important development happening within federal courts, We hope that you'll look at those developments and realize how important they are and then join a larger conversation within this country about what is, in fact, the appropriate relationship between the church and the state. All right. Well, thanks very much. Um, um, I usually like to ask our guests uh, before we go, uh, are there any projects, any other projects that you're working on right now uh, that you'd like our audience to know about? Do you have a a website um, where you have all your work uh, collected that you'd like to let us know about? If you uh, like to learn more about me and what's keeping me busy, uh, my name is Howard Gilman, and I'm the chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, so I'm pretty easy to find. And a lot of my writings and uh, my background and other works uh, can be found just on the chancellor's website. Erwin uh, Chemerinsky, of course, a very preeminent law professor and the dean of the Berkeley Law School is also easily found. And if you want to know what we're working on right now, you can visit those uh, various websites and, uh, and you can also contact us uh, uh, on the emails that are provided on our websites. We love to hear from people. Thanks very much. I want to thank you for this interview. I know Erwin had to go, unfortunately, but it's been very informative and uh, stimulating. Thank you very much, Kirk. We appreciate uh, the time. Once again, the book is The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. And we've been speaking to the authors, Howard Gilman and Erwin Chemerinsky. 
Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.